If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Genesis. Uh, we'll be in chapter 6. Um, as the video said, we are in a series called Epic. And the, um, the series is called Epic because we're thinking that as we go through the tw- first 12 chapters, uh, we're going to be able to have most of life's biggest questions answered. Um, as you go through the first 12 chapters, you can see some huge questions answered, like where did we come from? <clears throat> Why is there sin in the world? How do I understand my relationship with my spouse? Is there anything about marriage in here? We, we can see that as I interact with others and if I sin against them or they sin against me, what, what does that look like? So we see some of these big questions uh, that we, we can think about you know, in life answered in these first 12 chapters. We get good understandings, at least um, in a lot of practical levels, on how these things came about. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 today, and we're going to see... Um, a story that's, that's very familiar to us, but not necessarily um, the most cheery story that you can, you can uh, think of, especially if you remember it as a child, um, as we talk about Noah. Uh, most of us think, you know, Noah, Noah built an ark, and all the animals came in, and everything was great. It wasn't really great at all. Um, the context of it is, is actually not great at all. So uh, I want to give us a little bit of, a, of an intro and what's going on, and, and kind of catch us up to speed. It's just your first time, and then we'll, we'll jump in. We're going to be in, uh, starting at Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those underneath you. Just keep that if you want to. It'll be all yours. Um, but anyway, uh, just a, a little bit of a, a recap for us all. In Genesis chapter 1, creation happens. All the, all the days of creation is given to us. Everything God makes, and he makes it with reason. He makes it with purpose. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we zoom in on one of the days of creation, and we understand uh, why God created man and how uh, he created woman out of man and what's the purpose of putting them together, marriage, etc. We get into just chapter 3. For the very first bit, just a tiny little bit, we get what it's like for man to be in perfect relationship with God. Like this one little glimpse of, of, of what it's going to be like in heaven. But immediately after, uh, temptation happens. And so we can understand the, the, where the temptation came from, from Satan and then what happens from, because of that? There's, there's sin that enters the world as they eat the forbidden fruit. And we see our first parents rebelling against the, the, really the one law that God ever gave them. Don't eat this tree. You can do anything else you want. Just don't eat this one thing. And, that, and they end up doing that. Um, and, but as that happens, pr- these pronouncements of judgment happen. But this amazing gospel promise is held out to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, that talks about Jesus. It literally talks about Jesus, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium, which just means first gospel, where it says he's going to put enmity between the woman and your offspring, talking to the serpent, and it says, um, and between your offspring and her offspring, so between the one offspring that's coming, the seed or the Savior that's coming, and her offspring, uh, and it says, he shall bruise your head and he shall bruise... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we can see there this promise that there will be a time where the serpent has, the vic- has somewhat of a victory against Jesus on the cross, but ultimately Jesus will rise from that and defeat Satan's sin and death completely. So we have this first gospel promise where, where all his readers saying, oh, there's going to be a seed or a line or an offspring or this, a person coming from Adam and Eve that's going to be the one that's going to save everything. And so we're looking for that and we're like, oh, it's going to be, has to come from Adam and Eve because they're the first people, has to be one of their sons and all of a sudden, we see that this promised seed, this promised offspring is going to come from Abel. And then Cain kills Abel. And we're like, well, I guess it's all over. But then God gives grace at the end of chapter 4 by providing Seth. And as he gives Seth, the offspring comes from Seth. It was Abel, and now it's Seth. Out of God's mercy, he provides this offspring. And as he provides this offspring, at the very end of 4, we see the line of Cain and all his descendants and how perpetually sinful they become. And held up against that in chapter 5 are the ten generations of Seth and how they're held up as righteous people. We have these two generations held up. They kept having children, and they kept having children. But what we saw is there's two lines now, one of Cain, one of Seth. The Seth line is the righteous line. The, the sinful line comes from Cain. And they're, they're living am, amongst each other, but as su- two separate lines. And that gets us right into chapter 6. And as we get into chapter 6, what happens are the line of Seth, known as the sons of God, looks over at the line of Cain and says, well, they got some good-looking girls over there. We're going to leave these girls because those girls are hot. We want those. Even though it's a sin to go intermix, we're going to do it anyway. That's, that's a rough translation. But it says that it says it saw that they were attractive in verse 2. And so as that happens, 
they, they began intermixing this line. Now, we don't have that rule today. We don't have that rule today. You, you are free, free to marry whomever you want as long as they're a believer, no matter who they are, where they're from, etc. But here, that was not what was supposed to happen. And from that, from 6.1 to 6.8, we get to the end of chapter 5, and everything's like amazing. Like, this is awesome. Ten generations of awesome people. Everything must be great. And then all of a sudden, you get to 6.9, and then everybody's going to die from a flood. And you're like, what just happened? There has to be something that happens in these eight verses in between that can clue me in. Well, that's what the chapter 6 that we saw last week, verses 1 through 8, that clued us in on what's happening. You have the intermixing of the two lines, and then when finally you get to verse 5, verse 5 is this description that's given to us of now that all those lines of Cain have gone out and there's people all over the place, and you've got these ten generations, but after them, those particular people are becoming sinful. Um, at the last person in that line of, of ten generations is Noah. So you've got Noah, and then everybody else is sinful. And that's what gets us to verse 5, where the Lord looks out at everybody, and he's thinking, it created in Genesis chapter 1 for, er- for man to be in perfect harmony, relationship with God. That's what it was like in chapter 1. Perfect. And we get to chapter 6, and everything's gone completely against the plans of God. It says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So he's, man is wicked. It's the opposite of Genesis 1. And that every, and listen to this description. This is quite encompassing. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, this, this is the description of mankind and no doubt the description of our corrupt hearts if we're outside of Christ. And because of that, he says in verse 7, um, I am going to blot out man. Now, when we see that, we're like, oh, that is so heavy. God is going to just destroy everyone. And at first blush, I think all of us can say, I, I don't think I like that. That doesn't seem right. Everybody's going to die. And as we first are kind of hit in the gut by that, we think that's not right. We're getting the first glimpse then of just understanding the holiness of God and how much he hates sin and what his reaction towards sin is to blot it out. And our reaction towards sin should be the same thing, to kill it in our own lives as believers by the Spirit through the power of the Spirit in the Word. So we see that, um, but then after that happens, if we didn't have verse 8, and it says, I'm sorry that I've made him. You can just feel the emotion. I, I would never be able to say this, but God's saying this in, in a sense. I would never be able to look at one of my kids and say, you have sinned in such a corrupt, wicked, horrible, self-serving way that I'm, I'm grieved that I ever made you. I'm grieved that I ever had you. I, do, I don't want you to even be my, I, I want to blot you out of existence. I would never say it to one of my own children. But as God says this to his own children that he's created, his own creation, it gives us a sense, and everything inside of us is like, how can he do that as their father? It gives us a sense of his holiness. It lets us understand just how serious he is with sin. Um, now, we will get to um, that condition for us and what's the hope for us in Christ. But we're, without verse 8, <laughs> then the story, if it just ended at verse 7, would be very dreadful. But it says, but Noah found favor. Favor, grace, that's the Hebrew word grace in the eyes of the Lord. So there is going to be someone held out that will be saved, which brings us to where we are in verse 9. We're just going to go through uh, up to 8. We're not going to go anymore. So we're, the, the story of Noah is massive in this particular text, and we're only going to do half of it today. We'll do the other half next week. Uh, we're going to get into the flood and stop, and then the outs, outside of that we'll do next week. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your, your word. I pray, God, that as we look at your word, um, as we see a story that's not, uh, not cheery, as we've kind of heard it in maybe some children's stories, that a man builds a big boat and invites all the animals and they have a big party on the boat or something like that, Lord, that that's not really the case. What we see here is how serious you are regarding sin. And so I pray for our own hearts, God, that as we see judgment given, and even in mer- we see mercy towards Noah, that our hearts would be um, beginning to understand how serious you are regarding sin. I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me um, hold out your word and preach it in a way that's uh, 
helpful and accurate. I know that I can't, on my own strength at all, do anything without you. So I pray, God, that you would come now and fill me with the Spirit. I'm completely dependent upon you. I pray for us all as we might rebel against this story of your judgment that we would realize that you are holding out grace to us, the Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So, before we get into the story, I want to read a verse from the New Testament that will help us have a foundation of, I think, what's going on here. What is Moses trying to do? What is Moses wrote Genesis? What is he trying to do? What is he trying to point us to? Um, As we see, there's a declaration that there's people that are sinful, and then water comes and fills the entire earth, and as water fills the entire earth, just a few people are saved, eight people. That's basically the story. There's a, there's a cleansing of the, entire st- of the entire human race besides Noah, and just eight are saved. And so I think that this particular verse will help us see this new beginning or this new creation that's now become of there was Adam and all this corruption happened. God cleanses everything, and now there's a new beginning, a new creation. I want to read this verse in light of that, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and let it serve as our foundational piece that will let be the lens that we look through as we see this Genesis story. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, or she, is a new creation. If you're in Christ, you are, the old is past, the new has come. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you've been completely cleansed, and now you have a new beginning. Not some kind of, you know, random new beginning of a self-help thing. Hey, I've got a new beginning. We're saying, spiritually, you were dead, and now you've been made alive. You now are a complete new creation. Just like, very much so, that this earth that was completely universally flooded became a new creation. Um, That's what's going on here. So as we look at this particular text, I'm going to uh, as we read this, hold out, okay, this is a new creation that's going to happen. What are some things as us who are new creations in Christ that we can, we can ascertain, that we can pull, and we can see that apply to us? Salehammer, he's a New Testament, an Old Testament commentator, says, the purpose of this story is not to show why God sent the flood. Instead, the purpose is to show why God saved Noah. The ark, not the flood, is the focus of the author's intent. The ark will serve for us as a prefigure to Christ. The ark is the saving vessel for the people to be saved from. The cross is the thing that, when we, that because of Christ dying on it, is the thing that saves us. Um, so the ark is, is going to be paralleled with the cross. Now, look at this description. So we've got, in verse 8, Noah finding favor. He's been given grace by God. And now here's the descriptions. These are the generations of Noah. Look at this description, this threefold gener- uh, description of Noah. He was a righteous man. He was blameless. And in his generation, Noah walked with God. So we have these three things. This is the first time in the Bible that the word righteous or blameless is used. Righteous means accords with the standard of living. He's living right in a right relationship with God and his neighbors. He's righteous. It's the first time in the Bible it's used thus far. And he's also blameless. Uh, like, an, like an elder in 1 Timothy 3, he's above reproach. He walks with integrity of heart. He has wholehearted devotion to God. And we've already seen, compared to the rest of the people, you had these 10 generations and the only one left is Noah and everyone else is corrupt. And so he says that this one man, it's blameless. This one man is righteous. The first two times it's used in the Bible. It also says that he walks with God. That's not the first time that's been used. That's used, been used one other time, and that's in chapter 5, verse 24, as it refers to Enoch. If you remember, Enoch's the one that never had to die. Like, he never had the heart attack, or he never got stabbed, or he, he never had to lay down in his bed and just not wake up. God saw him, and it says in chapter 5, that he walked with God, and then he was no more. God said, this man walks with me so intently. I want him here now. I want him up here now. And so it says of Noah, the same description. So we, we know that is a huge, huge um, name to be given or title to be given or description to be given of Noah that he walked with God. He was righteous, he was blameless, and that he walked with God. Those three things are held out in chapter and verse 9 intentionally because it's wanting to contrast with verse 11, the rest of the world. Notice these words that are given for us in, chap, in verse 11. 
Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. The word, so we've got Noah, who is righteous, blameless, and walks with God. We have the world that's corrupt, sahat in the Hebrew, and violent, hamas. Perhaps you've heard this word in the news lately. Um, in contrast to Noah, the world was awful. Sahat means the, the world was corrupt or spoiled or disfigured. The world was also Hamas. Uh, one commentator says, describing Hamas or, or violent, it says, the, this is the cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others. It's motivated by greed and hate and often makes use of physical violence and brutality. This was the rest of the world compared to Noah. So now we see and understand verse 5 much better when the Lord looks out and it says that the intentions of their hearts are only evil continually. They kill, they rape, they murder. They, everything they do is self-involved. Everything they do is about them. They are the worst. And he looks at that in comparison to chapter 1, the way it was supposed to be. And God says, this is not the way it was supposed to be. In chapter 1, it says, as God looked out, he says, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. Here, it says in verse 12, and God saw, and doesn't say it's good, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Um, One little thing I'm going to do as we're going through these chapters is continually try to hold out to all of you textually. It's, It's literally in the text in the literary form of the text, over and over, and I believe it to be true, that this was a universal flood. There are commentators that say it was isolated to this particular region. Um, We're going to see over and over where the the writer doesn't seem to try to point us that direction at all. The writer wants us to think this is universal. And here's one one place where it says, um, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. So everybody and everything that's on the earth, they're all going to die. Um. For it was corrupted by, by, by all flesh and corrupted their own way. And God said to Noah. So that particular verse 13 is interesting. Because we as the readers have this understanding. God's going to blot out everything. Everything's bad. God's going to blot it out. Only person that we know to be righteous is Noah. Everyone else is corrupt. They're all evil murderers. But Noah doesn't know any of this yet. Noah doesn't know. He's just living among this. And obviously... I would think he doesn't like it. He's standing out as blameless. But then God's going to come to Noah and give him the news. You can just imagine hearing the news. God's going to come in verse 13 and go in a very long monologue from 13 all the way to 21. He's got a lot to say to Noah and he wants him to listen. Um, But before we get to that, let me read verse 13. It says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. That's Hamas. The earth is filled with this corrupt Hamas. Um, Behold, I will destroy. That word destroy is the same word as as corrupt. The sahat. He says sahat meaning meaning spoil or disfigure, change, destroy, corrupt. God said since they're violent to the earth, I'm going to destroy, corrupt, or disfigure the earth because of this. Because they are that, I'm going to do this as well. So this long description has been given to us of just how sinful earth is. And a new creation is going to come out. But before the new creation comes, they have to realize, and it has to be told to them, that this particular set of creation that you're in, this this world that you're in, is not right. You have to acknowledge that. So here's the first thing I want us to realize. And I'm going to to move this up to 30,000 feet for us. Because if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Here's the first thing. New beginnings or new creation. When I say new beginnings, I mean spiritually. I don't mean, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and not eat bacon anymore. I'm not saying something like that. I'm saying like something spiritual, like real. Like I was dead in my sin and now I'm alive in Christ. It's not, you know, a, uh, a January, what are those things called in January? We're not doing something. I'm going to work out now. It's not a new beginning like that. Uh, new Year's resolution. It's not, it's not one of those. New beginnings or new creation necessitates acknowledging need. Necessitates acknowledging need. You you will not become a new creation in Christ. You will not become born again. You will not be saved unless you acknowledge you have a need. You are not, none of us are like Noah, righteous, blameless. 
If you're not in Christ, you have not found grace yet. You have not been declared blameless. You have not been declared righteous. You have not been declared one who walks with God. Outside of Christ, every single one of us instead are violent and corrupt. We're all violent and corrupt. The, the Bible is teaching us here, outside of Jesus, that we're all totally depraved. We're totally depraved. We're not as sinful as we could be. You're not doing every evil thing that enters your head. Praise God, right? Whenever you have that thought, I want to murder that dude for what, like, you're not doing that. So, praise God. However, it has sin corrupted you completely. It has corrupted you completely. It's separated you from God. And you have to acknowledge that in order to be a new beginning, in order to have this new creation. You will not receive this new creation without acknowledging your need. None of us are righteous. No, not one. Now, after this, um, as God gives, this is interesting, as God gives this bit of news to Noah, you can just put yourself in that place, and he's like, Noah, i got to tell you something. Everybody's going to die. Just going to kill everybody, because everybody's sinful. And you're thinking to himself, okay, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them on the earth. And if I'm Noah at verse 13, Verse 13, I'm thinking, does that mean me too? I mean, I'm all flesh. I'm... That's not good news. That's just really bad, really bad news. And then God kind of goes into this description. And so this description starts helping me think, okay, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's, not, it's everybody else, but not me. So he looks at him and he says, make for yourself an ark. Now, I, who knows whether he knew that was. Maybe, most probably, all right, God, I'll do that. But what's an ark? Like maybe he knew, maybe he didn't, who knows. Uh, out of gopher wood, that's just a transliterated. So the, in the Hebrew, it's literally like a G, a P, kind of F-H sound, and an R, G-P-R. And so it's just been transliterated into gopher. Some of your translations might say cypress. We have no idea. It's just, it's just a hard wood, you know, presumably a very, very good wood. Make yourself an ark out of gopher wood. You know, who, who knows where to get that from? Um, make rooms in the ark. So God goes into this really detailed description of the ark. I want you to make an ark, and I want you to make it just like this. Just like this. Notice what he says. I want you to make an ark. I want you to make it out of gopher wood. Don't use any other stuff. I want you to put rooms in the ark. I want it to have all kinds of rooms. I want you to cover it inside and out with pitch. Um, you don't want it to leak. Don't, don't want a leaky boat here. It's going to be a big deal. Like, you don't want it leaking. So make sure that it's not going to leak. Cover it inside and out with pitch everywhere. Cover those holes. Plug them. It's going to be a big storm. And then he says this, interesting. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. I'm going to give you the descriptions in just a second. Breadth, 50 cubits, and height, 30 cubits. We don't speak in cubits anymore. So what this means is this. Um, here's the, the size of the ark. 150 yards long. That's like a football field and a half. Massive. Like even in today's standards, this thing is a battleship. This thing is massive. One, one place I heard said that uh, this particular ark could have held 700 railway cars. You know, when you, this train's going by, you're like, is this thing ever going to pass? Picture 700 of those plugged into one particular boat. This is a massive thing, and he has to make rooms and make all these things. 150 yards long, 25 yards wide, four and a half stories tall, 45 feet tall. Huge. I mean, just the, putting the pitch and making sure there's no leaks would take forever. And he says, I want you to make an ark. One commentator says that this ark is going to serve as the rescue capsule to save Noah and his family um, and give them this new beginning. And just as they're saved by the ark and given a new beginning, Jesus, through the cross, our ark, saves us and gives us a new beginning. The ark prefigures the saving work of Christ on the cross. And the water, the flood, prefigures for us the New Testament baptism that symbolizes that we've been gone down into there created and cleansed anew, and come out of the waters as a new beginning, as a new creation. The baptism doesn't do that. It symbolizes that with what the, the work of the Spirit does. And so there's a lot of stuff going on here. This, it's not just, you know, we built a big boat and all the animals got in. and we hanging out for a year in the boat. Um, like, there's all kinds of New Testament things that God's wanting us to see, that we're new creations. There's a baptism, there's a cleansing um, as the ark serves us as a cross. And it gives him very, very specific details. Notice some more. Um, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door in the ark and make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a great flood. All these details. And then he says, for behold, I will bring a great flood upon the waters, uh, upon the earth to destroy 
all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. That sounds universal to me. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That sounds universal to me. So here we have this, even a gospel in verse 17 and 18. We have the gospel of everything is wicked. Everything because they're wicked should receive this just penalty. In verse 18, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. But Noah and anybody that's a child of God like Noah that has found favor and now is righteous and blameless and walks with God, I will establish my covenant with you. First time the word covenant's being used here in the, in the Bible ever. Barret, covenant. And this is God's promise. God makes covenants, God makes promises, and God always keeps these promises. Always. And he looks at him, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you and you and your sons. I'm sorry, you and your wife will be able to come onto the ark. You and your, your sons and your sons' wives. That's verse 18. So we have a little gospel, 17 and 18 there. And then he continues giving his monologue, God does. And, every, and so not just you, but also a couple pairs of all these animals. Um, everything shall, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall <clears throat> bring two of every sort onto the ark to keep them alive with you. So this is very reminiscent of Genesis 1, or Genesis 2. Remember when Adam was there and he passes all the animals in front of Adam? He's like, name, 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 name. And he did that for the purpose of helping him say, wait a second, they're all pairing off in twos and there's just me. I don't have a two. Like, where's my two, God? So he, he names them all to help him to realize he has one. So as all the animals pass in front of Adam and he names them, this next creation or new creation or Noah is kind of like the another Adam as all the animals pass in front of Noah, similar as they did to Adam. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring, two of every sort in the ark shall keep them alive. They shall be male and female, of all the birds according to their kinds, of all the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come unto you to keep them alive. There's the salvation right there. Keep them alive. These things are going to get to live. I, I heard, and I don't know if it's true, as, they were, as God, we're going to see God closes the door. As God closes the door, there's these two cats that kind of jumped in at the very end. They weren't supposed to be in there. But um, anyway, uh, I'm just kidding. All right, but I don't like cats. 21. So also uh, take with you every sort of food. Don't forget the food. You're going to be there a while, and you can't kill the animals because we need for them to have their mate uh, so that when they get back out there, they can live. So make sure you take the food. Verse 21, very resourceful. Uh, monologue here. Don't forget your food. You're going to be there for a long time. That is eaten to store it up and shall serve as the food for you as you're there. Um, and then in verse 22, so God finishes and notice Moses, the writer, is wanting us to see after this long monologue from God is given to, to Noah, Moses immediately follows with verse 22, wanting us to really get the impulse to say, Noah, because he's righteous, because he's blameless, because he followed God, obeys. Look what it says in 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Just radical, immediate obedience. So here's the second thing. New creation. Being a new creation, based on the gospel, 17 and 18, we're wicked, we deserve judgment, but God makes a covenant with us through Christ, just like Noah. Being a new creation based on the gospel requires then detailed work, rearrangement of priorities, and obedience. That's, those are the three things that happens for him. He has to get to work with detailed work. He has a radical rearrangement of priorities, and he's immediately obedient. So let's talk about what I mean by that, and let's talk about what that looks in your life. He has to get to some detailed work building an ark. For us, we also have detailed things that we need to be doing. These things that we're doing are not salvific. They're not achieving your salvation. You've been given your salvation. Therefore, based on your salvation in Christ, now you're going to work and do these things out of worship, out of I get to do these things like there's things I need to do now. There's people I need to go be able to see and tell about Jesus. There's conversations that I would not have had as an unbeliever that I need to have now. There's people that I need to forgive that have sinned against me because I've been forgiven. There's conversations I need to have about um, sin in their life out of love. I want to tell them about it. Or there's conversations I need to have where I need to ask for forgiveness or conversations I need to have where I need to tell them about Jesus. Hey, you need to know who Christ is. You need to know who he is so you can co come to know Christ and be saved. There's also a radical rearrangement of priorities. Noah, cruising along in life, building his house, maybe had a garden. We know he had a garden later. Um, so he has all these things going on. And then God tells him, everything you see and everything you own, besides your wife and your kids and your wife's wives, your, your, your son's wives, are going to be killed. 
Everything you have right near, right now, it's gone. That changes the priorities. I have this house. I think it's awesome. God's saying, that house is gone. I'm going to flood the whole earth. It's gone. Got these cars and these phones and all these awesome things. Yeah, all those things are going. I'm going to kill them all. They're, they're, all those things are gone. That would make me say, radical rearrangement of priorities. I've got all these friends that don't follow you, God. Yeah, because of the flood, they're going to perish. Now, we know that no one turns and comes to follow God and gets on the ark besides these eight. But what we don't know is, if they had, maybe they would have. What we know is, there was a radical rearrangement of the prior. He, he knows all this stuff is temporary. All this stuff that I think is a big priority in my life is no longer a priority in my life. Doing the will of God, following this detailed order, and caring for these people that I may never see again soon. What if we lived our lives with that radical reorientation of our priorities? What if, just like Noah, when we look out at these people knowing there's death coming for them, we didn't just deal around with our cars and houses and stuff. I'm not saying those things are bad. God gives you those things as presents, as great gifts to use, but not to be your priority. There's all kinds of people around us that need for us to radically rearrange our priorities, take the focus off of ourselves, and realize that life is not about us as believers, and focus on other things, people, caring for them, our families, etc., doing the will of God. From Noah's perspective, everyone he knew would perish. Everyone he knew would perish. Everything would be destroyed. Imagine if you lived with that same mentality every day. Because that's true. And he had this amazing obedience. He did everything that he said. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. Being a new creation means that we have to rearrange our priorities. Let me ask this question. If you're in Christ, has being a new creation caused you to have to rearrange any of your priorities yet? It should have. It should have. If it hasn't, then maybe we're getting glimpses of just how self-focused we are. Obedience follows. He does everything God commands. Urgent Urgent obedience, not partial, not partial obedience. You can imagine here, um, well, let me show you verse 22 to 7 1. There, there's, a big, there's a big gap, if you will, in time. 7 22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded. 7 1, then the Lord said, Go get in the ark. All right, so wait a second, God. Go build an ark. Get in the ark. You forgot this whole part about building the ark. Like, didn't that take a while? We know when Noah was 500 years old, that's what it says at the very end of chapter 5, he had his three sons. And we also know that at chapter 7, um, verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came. So it's about a 100-year space right there um, where Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth are going to build an ark together. Sailhammer even says he probably had other people building. Hey, come build this ark with me. I'll pay you. I'll get you. We want to build this ark together. They're building the ark. Imagine that. So we have this 100-year period of Noah, likely 100-year period. It could have been, you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born there 500. So it could have been that, you know, they got into their teens. Maybe it was 85 years, whatever. We still know that it's a long process. I want you to think about this. God commands it, and he obeys. Radical rearrangement of priorities, working out the details, doing all these things. And Noah perseveres through this obedience for close to 85 years. When God calls you to do something, how long do you persevere in obeying that command? I mean, you can imagine, every day. <laughs> it, it's not there, but every day, between, between 622 and 71, there's an everyday fight of faith for 85 to 100 years for Noah to go and kick ham and kick Shem and Japheth and say, boys, get up. Got to go build this ark. Get your hammer. And they're just, dad, not again. Are you kidding me? We're building a boat in the desert. <laughs> We're not even near water. We're in the middle of a desert. Yeah, but there's going to be a flood. Okay, dad. We're in the desert. There's never water. 
Nope, God said it, and I believe it. And we're going to persevere. I'm going to obey this command for 85 to 100 years. So we're not called, I don't think, to anything more difficult than Noah. For 85 years, this man is obeying this command of God, trusting God at his word, because he made a covenant with him in 718, or 618. He made a covenant with him. So there's a gap that we missed out on. Another thing I want you to see, right there in verse 18. Noah was chosen by God to be the channel or the instrument of salvation for people. Verse 7, but I will establish my covenant, Noah, with you because you are righteous, blameless, and walk with me. And because of that, I'm going to allow you to enter the ark. And because of your faithfulness, because of you um, being a faithful servant, I'm going to allow seven more people to be saved. Here's the third thing I want you to see uh, being a new creation. The third thing is this. Being a new creation means that you are chosen by God to be a channel of salvation for others. No pun intended on the channel. Instrument, if you want, of salvation. Noah, because of him, seven other people got saved. You say, well, that's not a whole lot. I mean, the whole earth died, Fud. <laughs> Only seven, that's pretty bad odds. Okay, I'll grant you that. Um, but that's all up to, to the Lord. How about we just do this? How about you be a channel of salvation for seven people in your lifetime? Seven people. How many people have you led to Christ? I know salvation's up to the Lord. How many people have you declared the gospel to? Declare the gospel to seven people in your lifetime. So seven people doesn't look so, so, such a small number now. Because of Noah, he was used by God to be a channel of salvation for other people. Noah was chosen by God to save his wife and his kids and their spouses. Likewise, you have been sa- chosen by God to proclaim his covenant, his gospel to others in their, for their salvation. There is already a new covenant, a new testament for us in Christ that we can proclaim and others can be saved. Noah, not he didn't just have the right head and the right heart. He didn't just know everything correctly and have right belief, but he also had the right hands. He was a man of action. And in, in Remedy especially, we need to make sure that we're not just the kind of people that are sharp on our theology and filled with correct beliefs about God, but we're slow to action and obedience. We need to be also quick to action and obedience. We need to be majors in GSD, getting stuff done. Like action, getting it done. It says in, in Hebrews eleven five 5, in the, the hall of faith about Noah, it says that it was because of holy fear that he built the boat. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerned of events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, holy fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he was condemned by the world, by this he condemned the world, sorry, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. All that happens in between the two chapters. Perseverance and obedience. That's what we're called to. Now, 7-1 is the heightened conflict. The, the conflict intensifies in the narrative because finally it's done and the Lord says to Noah, go into the ark. And then we're going to have more description of the animals again. It's, it's, it's almost a rehearsal of all this again as it describes it. Go into the ark, uh, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous, talking about Noah, before me in this, gener- before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all cleans of animals. Take the males as mate and pair of animals, etc. You can see in verse 4, for in seven days, all of a sudden, turn. Seven days. He's, he's been building for 85 to 100 years. Lots of radical, persevering obedience. And finally God comes to him and says, seven days. Seven days. I just can't help but think to myself, as Noah hears seven days, with all these people around him that are some of his friends. It says in, in, in the Bible, in Hebrews, that Noah was also preached. I can't help but think he starts proclaiming, trust God. It, I, I know I've been saying the flood's coming. I know I built a big boat out here in the desert. But here's the thing. It's no longer out there, and we don't know. Seven days now. Seven days. Trust God. Follow him. Turn from your sin. You can just imagine the heightened um, feelings of remor- or, or 
being sad for those people that won't come to know God, it, they obviously don't, intensifies in his heart when he knows they have seven days now. Radical reorientation of his priorities. Imagine seven days and your fill in the blank that somebody that's important to you has. You would totally change the way that you talk to them. Totally change. Seven days, he tells them. And I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I will make, I will blot out from the face of the ground. Sounds universal. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded. Again, another statement of, of Noah's radical obedience to the commands of God. Verse 6, we have Noah's age. Noah 600 upon the earth, was 600 years old. That's crazy old, right? Like he limped up in a wheelchair onto the boat, I guess. Uh, and floodwaters, and there was different back then. And Noah and his sons, well, he was certainly old. And Noah said in his sons, his wives and sons with him, to escape the waters, verse 8, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, of birds and everything that creeps. So we have this description of animals again. Um, and Noah, it says again in 9, did all that God commanded. And it says, after seven days, the water of the floods came upon the earth. And it gets really descriptive of Noah. In the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month on the 17th day, um, on the 12th hour and the second second, I'm just kidding, on that day, here it is, and it says, the foundations, this is it, the foundations of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heavens were open. About three weeks ago, I went to Camp McCall, um, and I spent some summers in there uh, back in the 90s, and like up on the top of the hills, this chapel, and I've been up at the top of the chapel where all of a sudden like it just started raining, and it was like, unbelievably raining hard. Like if I went outside into the water, I think it would like knock me down. It was raining so hard. Um, I, I was even lighter then. So as I was, out, I mean, and we have this wa- one waterfall where if you stand under, there's actually two waterfalls there. One of them's huge, one of them's not. But if you stand under it, the water hits you so hard that it's like knocking you down. This is what the rain was like. Standing under a waterfall where it's literally hitting you so hard, waterfall kind of strength of water everywhere all over the entire world for 40 days. The great deluge, or as it says, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heavens were open. This wasn't a trickle. This was a torrential downpour. Torrential downpour for 40 straight days. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Lightning, thunder. I mean, the flooding happened instantly. It was so much water, especially in the lower parts. All those people there. It says, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah and his three wives and sons with them entered the ark. And every beast of according to its kind, all, they all went unto the ark. Verse 15, and they went to the ark and Noah, two and two and all flesh were there. They had the breath of life. This breath of life is ruas, is spirit. Also can be translated spirit. This is very Um, symbolically there in Genesis 2-7 where God breathes the breath of life into Adam and it says that they also have the breath of life. And those that entered male and female, notice this. I mean, Noah gets in, doesn't close the door. He's just standing there looking out as the great deluge happens and then all of a sudden he realizes this is it. He doesn't close the door. He just watches as it comes down. And it says here, and those that entered male and female flesh went in as God commanded and the Lord shut the door. The Lord shut the door. The Lord saved them. The Lord shut the door. I think that's there because it's showing us that as God shows, shuts the door, God's the one that saves them. God is totally responsible for our salvation. Noah's salvation is because of divine grace. Our salvation is because of divine grace. We are saved because of God and his grace towards us. Verse 17 is where the tension rises to its maximum. The flood continues 40 days on the earth. You can just imagine torrential downpour, waterfall level falling. First to go were the weakest. The weakest people, the elderly, maybe the youngest. They couldn't go. But then the stronger, maybe the stronger men and women in their 20s and 30s ran uphill, ran to the tops of the mountains to stand up there as it started coming up. All trying to escape. Now, I know when we hear that, Every single one of us says, that's not right. That's not fair. That can't be. I can't even picture God sending such a great flood that these weak people are dying. And as I said, remember, this is giving us a picture of how much God hates sin. As they're all scattering, it says in verse 17, the waters increased and 
bore up the ark and it rose above the earth. So all of a sudden, the desert now, this boat picks up and there's water everywhere. And it says, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that the highest mountains under the whole heaven were covered. It says that in verse 19. Now the highest mountain in this particular place in the Middle Eastern, in the Middle East, is in modern day Iran. It's Mount Damavan. Um, and it's about 18,000 feet high. That's over three miles. The highest mountain is ever over in Nepal. It's 30,000 feet. So it's either going to be three miles or possibly five miles. I think it's universal, so I think it's talking about Nepal. If you don't think that, it's at least talking about uh, Damavan, which is three miles. The water starts lifting up so high that it literally is three miles or to five miles high above every piece of, of earth. And then in the mountains, notice this. It says that the, it prevails so high, it goes above the mountains. Uh, it prevails so high. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So I think above Everest, water's 22 and a half feet above Everest, the highest point in the world. So even when the strongest ran to the highest mountain, thinking they were safe, the water still went 22 and a half feet above that and came down in a torrential downpour for 40 days. And after that, it stays like it is for another 150. There is literally nowhere to go. Now here's why I completely try to say over and over, let me read this last little part and I'll say, that prevailed above the mountains 15 cubit deep. All flesh died, that sounds universal, that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, all swarming creatures that swarmed on the earth and all mankind, all mankind died. This is the first mention of actually the death happening. Univer it sounds universal to me. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, the ruah, died. It blotted out every living thing. This sounds universal. Um, animals and, and birds and heavens, and they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. The reason why I keep trying to point us to helping us see this is universal is because this is symbolic of our sin. Sin is universal and it kills every one of us unless we're made into a new creation. And just like this was a universal flood, sin is a universal sickness that kills every single one of us. And we all have to have our saving vessel. For them it was the ark, for us, for us it's the cross. Noah serves as a, as a precursor or a prefigurement of Jesus. And it says this, only Noah was left and those that were with him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. 40 days fills up the entire earth with water and it stays there for 150 more days. That 190 days, and as it starts subsiding after that, will completely change the face of the earth. Completely change the face of the earth. That's why the earth looks like it does now. It completely changes the face of the earth. But the entire earth was washed and cleansed and blotted out of its sin and then made into a new creation. And this is the same for us that are in Christ. We are washed and cleansed completely. There's not one place that wasn't covered. There's not one place that wasn't cleansed. There's not one place in us if we're in Christ that isn't covered. There's not one place in us that isn't cleansed. Those sins that are done against you, that you think define you now, I... Somebody did this to me, therefore I'm dirty now, therefore those things washed, cleansed. Those things that you've done, I'm shameful of the things that I've done. I can't believe it. Now I feel guilty about that. I am a fill in the blank. No, you're not. You are now a new creation in Christ. The old is past. That description of you is in the past. That's not you. Because you have been completely, wholly cleansed, you are now a new creation in Christ. That's not descriptive of you. You're a believer in Jesus. You're a new creation. All those things have been washed away. And as we get to the end of 24, we're just thinking, <laughs> what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's all over? Are they just going to stay in the boat forever? And then we have this promise, this promise, Seven, I'm sorry, 618, I'm going to give you my covenant. Eight, one, but God remembered Noah because God keeps covenant. God remembered Noah. God is making a new beginning and he's making this new beginning with Noah. 
we'll see next week that gradually the waters will subside. Um, as they did in Genesis 1 where the waters prevailed and there was chaos and the Holy Spirit came and brought order to the chaos. Same thing here. Order is going to be brought to the chaos. All things are being made new. And a new creation, a new divine cleansed creation arises out of the chaos. That's, that's true of us. A new divine cleansed creation when we're in Christ arises out of the chaos and wreckage and spoilage and violence of our previous life as a sinner. And God's present in this chaos and he's bringing order and he's preserving and he's making all things new. Sidney Gradenus, he's a commentator as he looks at this. I want to conclude with this. This is what he says. Noah um, represents for us or prefigures Jesus. But Jesus is the truer and greater Noah. Noah is clearly a type of Christ. Noah is the seed of the woman, a new Adam representing the human race, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that walked with God, a person who obeyed God without question, a person through whom God made a new start with his world, just like Jesus, blameless, righteous, walked with God and made a new start for all creation. But Christ is greater than Noah. Through, the, through Christ, God makes a completely new start with his people. He gives them clean hearts and the hope of a new creation that is free from bondage and decay. New heavens and new earth where righteousness is now at home. The flood was judgment and Jesus took our judgment. This is why Jesus is truer and better. Noah was the one that, because of the floods, escaped the judgment of God. Jesus and he served as a vessel for salvation for the people. Jesus serves as a salvation for vessel of the people, but he does not escape judgment. Instead, he's righteous, and he takes on the judgment for us. And we get to escape it. And we are made now a new creation, given a new beginning spiritually, from being dead to being made alive. Verse 8-1, because God remembered Noah and it points us to Christ, is reason to worship. It's reason to worship. It's reason to give God all the glory because of what he's done for us in Christ. So here's two things I want you to think about, and then we'll close. If you're not a believer, trust Christ today. Be made a new creation. All of your sin cleansed. All the sins done against you cleansed. You can be made a new creation in Christ by trusting in Jesus' death for you. The second thing is this. If you're a believer... Don't miss this. Get down and busy to the details of life that God's called you to do. Radically rearrange your priorities away from your selfish motives and start doing the work of God immediately with obedience. Immediately with obedience. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love and your mercy. I pray for us all as we hear this tough text about your judgment that we realize Judgment does not have to be given to us, but instead mercy is extended through us, to us through Christ. And that we would trust Christ, believe in Christ, and receive your mercy and not your judgment. That we'd receive heaven forever and forgiveness and cleansing forever, not your righteous judgment that puts us in hell. Because we've been saved, because we've been cleansed, I pray that we would stand and give you all the glory and all the worship that you deserve. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.